You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute the Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And Jay's still sleepy. He had a 5 a.m. workout this morning. He actually got up and went. Up at 4.30 in the morning. Oh, my Hey, the, gr- the grind never stops, baby. Well, we are about to take a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, if you were to enter a contest and win a lifetime supply of something, what exactly does that mean? We went through the legal hoops for you. Ever dreamt of winning a game show? You're the one who wins the showcase showdown on The Price is Right. You bought a ton of vowels. You solved the puzzle on the Wheel of Fortune. You put together the Shrine of the Silver Monkey on Legend of the Hidden Temple, and now you're headed to space camp. Knock, knock. It's the IRS. In the 1970s, a city in West Virginia was torn apart over books at school. We discussed the infamous West Virginia textbook war. But the children love the books. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. That intro sentence. Knock, knock. It's the IRS. (laughs) So, Dave, I feel like when we were younger, I remember seeing a lot of commercials for contests where the winner was promised a lifetime supply of something. Do you feel like I'm off base here, or did you have that experience, too? Yeah, and I feel like a lot of those lifetime offers happened during Saturday morning cartoons, which really were a bigger deal when we were kids than they are now. Yeah, I feel like if I won a lifetime supply of cereal or something when I was seven, you know, now I'm 32. Still like, be getting am, it. Am I still getting it, right? Like, that <laughs> was the question that I had. What does it mean if I won a lifetime supply? So winning a lifetime or year's supply of something is something that does happen sometimes. Uh, Sometimes a business or a major chain will offer these contests. But like we said, I've always wondered what exactly that means, right? Like how do you define a year's supply of Burger King, for example? Does it mean that the winner should get a free meal every day of a year? Does it mean that they should get as much as they want of it in a year? Do we need to calculate how much Burger King the average person in America eats and then use that? to determine what it means. Well, when it comes to the legal framework that contests like this have to operate in, the line gets pretty hard to find. Uh, Legally speaking, a company must disclose certain information about the prizes of contests in any advertisement that is shown to a contestant, whether it be on TV or on the radio or on a poster or whatever. The disclaimer by law must include how much it is, the retail value of the prize, when and how it will be delivered to the winner, and any requirements the winner would need to meet to claim the prize. The company also has to adhere to what the Federal Trade Commission calls the reasonableness test, which in this case would require a reasonable person to agree that the prize awarded would last an average person for the time period advertised. So a lifetime supply of Burger King for me would be one every five years. Well, you know, you're not quite down with the rodeo burger, but uh, (laughs) some of us are just uncultured, I guess. Now, uh, really from there, you can get creative on what all of that means. For example, a promotion for gumball.com that offered a lifetime supply of gumballs decided that this meant 22,082.5 
five gumballs. And they got to this number by taking the average life expectancy, subtracting it by 18, since that was the minimum age to enter the contest, and then multiplying the difference by 365 for a gumball a day. The Center for Biological Diversity held a giveaway in which five winners won a lifetime supply of condoms, and it was sort of a play on how overpopulation is hurting the environment and whatnot. And what a lifetime supply of condoms meant uh, was presented without explanation. And ultimately, they defined it as 1,000 condoms, which comes out to about 17 condoms a year. They, they missed a great opportunity there for a joke, making the uh, lifetime supply of condoms like three well, well, and, uh, it, you know, if you want to learn more about it, it's kind of interesting. Like I fell into a hole a little bit, like the condoms had like pictures of polar bears on it. And it was like, do you really want, do you really want me to like not have an ice cap to stand on or something? Like it was like stuff like they were trying to guilt trip you and stuff. So, uh, for a Starbucks K cup year supply giveaway, so we're talking years now, that meant 52, 10 count packages of K cups, a grocery chain called high V gave away 360. 65 Tide Pods in a contest marketed as a free laundry detergent for a year. A year's supply of Ben and Jerry's is 52 pints because I guess you not eating a pint every day, but rather a pint a week passes the reasonableness test. Sometimes companies will give away vouchers or gift cards in lieu of physical products to avoid the logistical nightmare of shipping the prize. But again, as long as it is in the disclosed uh, rules and passes the reasonableness test, you're in the clear as a company to do this. Uh, Burger King, for example, gave the winner of their lifetime supply contest a $500 gift card every six months for the next 25 years instead of just shipping a ton of Whoppers to the front door. Well, if you ate that much Burger King over the course of 25 years, you would die. So it makes sense that that's when they'd cut it off. I was, my eyes were open to the lie of the year supply of something when a Chick-fil-A opened in my hometown. So Chick-fil-A does this big thing that if you camp out the night before, a certain number of people will get a year supply of Chick-fil-A. No, what they do is they give you a rubber band bound uh, collection of gift cards redeemable for one Chick-fil-A sandwich per week. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, and Chick-fil-A kind of dropped the ball on this recently, too, because uh, the NBA Finals just wrapped up and the Milwaukee Bucks won. And uh, the next day, the uh, Finals MVP, Giannis uh, Antetokounmpo, drove through a Chick-fil-A. And since he put up like 50 points, he asked for 50 chicken nuggets. It said something on camera. He had like thousands of people watching. He was like, can I get uh, like free Chick-fil-A for life? And they just like never responded to him. They didn't know who like, he was, probably. About the, the, the marketing <laughs> opportunity there it's just like it's unreal that you drop the ball that hard on that jay i would say that commute has shown itself to be a fan of the game show genre wouldn't you i mean we've discussed jeopardy in great detail and i guess that you would say the bachelor and the bachelorette would technically qualify as game shows I mean, I don't know if I'd put The Bachelor and Bachelorette in the category of game shows. I mean, we're talking about finding love on reality TV. It's a little bit different than like winning a Hummer because I spun a wheel. Overall, though, I think it's fair to say that we have a general love and appreciation for game shows, regardless of what you think qualifies as a game show. Our generation still talks about the days of watching a show called Legends of the Hidden Temple on Nickelodeon, for crying out loud. I mean, the best prize you got on that game was a trip to a dude ranch or space camp. Maybe an Etch-A-Sketch came along with that, but it wasn't a great prize package. We love game shows. 
Well, as you know, here at Commute, we love to dig into the most interesting part of something. And for me, Jay, when it comes to game shows, it's all about the prizes, baby. Like, if you win a million dollars, do you actually get a million dollars? I've always been curious about the actual process of collecting your winnings when you hit it big on Jeopardy, select the correct box on Deal or No Deal, or win the showcase showdown on The Price is Right. Do you get all the cash, the cars, and the trips? Or is there more to it after the lights go off and the channel changes to either daytime soap operas or the 6 o'clock news? Well, as you've heard it said before, Jay, the only guarantees in life, death and taxes. And winning a game show is no different. You probably won't die, but you're going to pay a lot of taxes. It boils down to this. You are required to pay taxes on everything you win on a game show as long, disclaimer, as it's over the magic number of $600. So let me explain this to you. Let's start with the aforementioned and one of my childhood favorites, The Price is Right. On The Price is Right, the mecca of the show is to be crowned the champion of the Showcase Showdown, a pricing game that typically grants the winner a car, a trip to an exotic location, something random like a vacuum cleaner, and then something even more random like a year's supply of cooking oil. According to winner testimonies from sites like The List or Reddit, after the show ends, you're given a form that outlines your prizes and how much you can expect to pay in taxes to actually claim them. Jay, often winners will walk away from the prizes entirely because they cannot shoulder the financial burden. Perhaps a better way to look at this is to examine an actual winner from one of the most watched game shows in television history. Wheel of Fortune! Millions of people apply to be on Wheel each year, with only about 10,000 of them getting selected for a show interview, and of those 10,000, 600 or so will appear on the show, with only a third of those, so about 200, making it to the final round. Market Watch did a report a few years ago on one of these winners, a guy named Matt McMahon. McMahon's final winnings, before taxes, looked like this. $16,400 in cash, and two vacations valued at $15,300 for a total of $31,700 in cash and prizes. So before we reveal what McMahon actually walked away with, let's look at how the tax structure works in one of these situations. So how much gets taxed, you ask? Good question. Well, it depends on the state you live in and how much you actually win. Regardless of state law, though, all prize taxes are taxed by the federal government. So, Jay, let's say you win $25 million in prizes and you live in New York. City and state taxes would be about 13% of that. And a large prize total would mean that you're taxed at the current highest possible tax bracket, a rate of 37%. So, Jay, you would walk away with about half of that $25 million in winnings. So back to McMahon. Once again, he won substantially less than $25 million, with his prizes totaling a respectable $31,700. Wheel of Fortune allowed him to find some less expensive vacations, which brought his total winnings down a bit. But after he paid all associated taxes, he estimates he walked away with $6,000 of his $31,700. Jay, roughly one-fifth of what he earned. That was just the... 
was a punch right in the gut to hear that. I imagine that it must be nice to work at the IRS because you can just watch a game show and ev- whoever wins, you win. Like, you're just cheering for everybody. Yeah, do you think they just sit back and laugh? Like, <laughs> <laughs> while people are winning. Like, when somebody wins on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, they're dying. Because they're thinking, this guy's just going to get $400,000. What a loser. They high-five yeah, you get each to root, other. You get to root for every team if you work at the IRS. The, thing, the, the prices, right? Like, the prizes are so random, too. Like, if I win, like, a hot tub and a grill and, like, a set of golf clubs. You know what I mean? I'm not going to put a hot tub in my house. I already have a grill, and I don't play golf. Yeah, but I, I know me, so I know what I would be doing. I would, after the shows, uh, like, the show would end, I would have won. I call Jen. I call my wife. I'm so happy that I won. And she goes, now, definitely, you're not going to claim the hot tub, right? Like, we don't have anywhere to put it. And I, I would say, Jen, it was, a, it was a prize. I have to take it. Every time I get in that hot tub, I'm going to be transported back to when Drew Carey told me that I want a hot tub. (laughs) So, Dave, you and I are both from the great state of West Virginia, and we've lived here our entire lives, and we live here now. Uh, And I think it's pretty safe to say that we we love it here. You know, Uh, we love our state, and we're proud of where we're from. You know, most people that I know are that are from West Virginia are pretty proud of it. Speak for yourself. <laughs> no, no, I, I, you're right. I mean, there are things about it I don't like, but there are plenty of things I do. And West Virginia gets a bad rap. The people here, for the most part, are really great. Um, that's why I haven't left yet. It's kind of like a you can't talk about my brother, but I can talk about my brother type exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and we know, uh, too, that West Virginia has a complicated history, right? Uh, I was talking with uh, one of my buddies, uh, Don, a few weeks ago, and he brought up this topic of what he called the West Virginia textbook war. And I was kind of like, okay, I don't know what that is, but uh, it piqued my interest and started kind of researching about it. And as somebody who actually works in the education system in West Virginia, I was surprised that I hadn't heard about this before. So this is a story about how people who believe they are on the right side of history defending their way of life can be driven to commit evil and bind themselves to evil ideas of racism and justifying their behavior. And what really gets me here too, Dave, is the recency of it all. You know, we tend to think of stories like this one as if they took place in some distant alternate reality and that these sort of events just don't happen today when that just isn't the case. And it hits a little bit more personally home for us just being from the state in which it took place in. In May of 1974, uh, the Kanawha County Board of Education, Kanawha County is where Charleston is, which is the capital city of West Virginia, they met to approve a series of new textbooks to be used in their school systems. And while you would expect this sort of thing to just kind of be a routine and not in any way controversial, it ended up being anything but that. Uh, In 1974, the state had recently mandated that school books should, quote, portray the contributions of minorities to American culture. And these new texts complied with this directive, but not all agreed with this new direction. Uh, The pushback really began when a woman named Alice Moore, the wife of a pastor who had actually won a seat on the school board for pushing back against sex education in schools, uh, Moore categorized these books as anti-American, obscene, anti-Christian, and pro-communist, and made the argument that a parent must have their children subjected to an education with no say in the process. The media campaign began, and a coalition of people 
people from many socioeconomic backgrounds came together to fight the adoption of these textbooks. Moore won the support of the rural working class and the middle class churchgoers. 12,000 Kanawha County residents signed a petition in protest. And when class opened in September, 20% fewer students showed up. That's about 9,000 kids were kept home in protest. 10,000 minors stayed home from work in protest, and in-person protesters assembled in front of the board and schools for months. Reverend Charles Quigley asked Christians to, quote, pray that God would kill the giants who have mocked and made fun of dumb fundamentalists, leading one student to point out that they're shooting people because they don't want to see violence in books. Man, Praying for murder, that's, that's extreme. Right, and, and in the fall, uh, it got violent. Uh, two men were shot and injured on a picket line outside a coal mine. An elementary school was firebombed. Another was dynamited. The superintendent was threatened regularly and was maced. A local pastor named Marvin Haran spoke from the pulpit on the possibility of bombing buses full of children heading to school, a threat for which he eventually would receive jail time. School buses were shot at and stoned, and families who chose to send their kids to school were harassed, intimidated, and sometimes attacked. The KKK even made its way across state lines throughout the life of the protests to participate. And to understand this, Dave, you really have to understand the backdrop behind it. In the 1970s, America had emerged from two decades of pretty radical change. The civil rights movement had reached its height of breakthroughs in the 60s, but not without violent pushback. Women had made great strides in bringing ideas of feminism to the mainstream conversation. The television had entered nearly every American living room and broadcast news directly to families. Religious revival had been spurred on across the country. Technology had exploded. And the fear of communism was still very real, and it sort of dominated the conversation around politics. The Soviets were seen as these faceless, godless destroyers of Christianity, and Americans saw themselves as the last defenders of religion on the planet. And to many, the idea of studying darker sides of American history or studying other perspectives in general threatened to undermine the patriotism of an emerging generation, one that was already pushing back against the Vietnam War, which at this point was very close to a conclusion. Uh, to many, this was the ultimate communist plan, right? To turn America's own people against the country and destroy it from within, thereby destroying Christianity in the process. So ultimately, the textbooks were adopted by the Board of Education, but in the minds of the protesters, they had reclaimed the conversation from the social unrest of the 1960s. Uh, to many who participated, they sort of frame it as they stood up to the liberal elitists. And after the protests, networks of Christian private schools were founded all all across West Virginia, and today these sort of controversies continue. Uh, issues over religion or absence of religion in public schools or conversations about how sh we should teach history of America are raging storms of controversy right now. But the conversation is absolutely not new and really can be traced much farther back than the 70s to the Scopes trial of the 20s. And I think the lesson here is that the issue on education and what education should be just seems to be just one of the fundamental divides in our country, one that I don't know if we'll ever really find a place where everybody's happy in. 
Yeah, and Jay, you said something on the front end about how this hits kind of close to home for us because we are from the state that this occurred in. It also hits close to home for us because we are parents. And and Jay, I understand that parents would want to defend their kids. They'd want their kids to grow up to be good human beings. That's a good motivation. But it's crazy how people can have that good motivation, and it should be positive, And then somehow that morphs into something awful, like something racist or violent, something that causes mayhem. Non-awful motivations aside, though, and not knocking teachers at all, because you're a teacher, my mother was a teacher, I have tons of friends who are teachers, but I think that some classes at school are maybe less effective than we realize. Like, for example, take my seventh grade typing class. The teachers in there acted like we had no idea how to type on a keyboard. That's all we did at home. You know, what I remember about typing class is that you had to put your fingers on the keys. They would put a cover over the keys so you couldn't see them, which doesn't make any sense. And we were all using Instant Messenger. And so the person in the room that was trying to teach the class, we would just be like typing circles around them because we were so used to typing. And it's just like a good example of like, yeah, like you guys did not know where the world was going when you decided to offer this class. Like the kids already know how to type. And that's it. Thanks for hanging out and listening this week to Commute. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And check us out on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say hey at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Samus. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. Have a great week. We will see you next Monday.